You are listening to Preaching and Teaching on the Man of God Network of Podcasts. This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. want to begin with is Van Til's doctrine of the ontological trinity. If you are looking for the center of Van Til's theology, there's no debate about where it exists. It's not covenant. It's not worldview. It's not even Christology. The center of Van Til's theology is the self-contained ontological trinity. He is explicit about this. The ontological trinity is our interpretive concept everywhere, he says. But if you're looking for the doctrinal expression of that, Van Til makes explicit in chapter 17. Ooh, this is nice. I've got to watch getting my hand there. Chapter 17 of IST. Ventil makes explicit that his doctrinal starting point for the Trinitarian theology he advocates is the Westminster Confession of Faith. Ventil is beginning with the Westminster Confession of Faith. But he's especially beginning with that document as it was received and interpreted by Old Princeton where he studied, and where A.A. Hodge taught and wrote a commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith. In light of a number of biblical texts, Van Til on page uh, 222 especially, this is where we're going to camp out just a little bit, page 222. I'm liking this. Can I erase that? Oh, I'm loving this, yeah. Yeah. on, on page 222, Van Til says this. He says, um, on the basis of the scripture passages just cited, he says, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2, section 3, so it's 2-3, says this. In the unity of the Godhead, There be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. And he he ends that quote. Let, Let me put it this way to you. Not only does Van Til affirm the doctrine of the Trinity lies at the heart of the Christian religion. But he confesses a creedal and confessional doctrine of the Trinity. He is explicit about a reformed doctrine of the Trinity. Let me put it bluntly. Van Til is not a biblicist. Um, A biblicist, by definition, is someone who reads and interprets the Bible 
without recognizing and confessing the way the Bible has been read and interpreted by the ancient creeds and in the Reformed confessions. It's a kind of isolating of your biblical reading from the creeds and confessions of the church. Ventil's just not doing that. Um, he is not aiming for novelty, contrary to, to some insinuations. His Trinitarian formulae are enshrined in the Westminster Confession of Faith so that what he's going to try to develop, either explicitly and directly, or by good and necessary consequence, will flow from the symbol of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, he'll use others. He's going to engage with Calvin. He's going to engage with Bavinck and Augustine and others. But here in Confession, in uh, um, uh, chapter 17 of the IST, it's Westminster Confession 2-3. Um, and, and the second point is a kind of extension of that. But I want you to appreciate this. Van Til does not begin with Augustine or Calvin, some of you might find what I'm about to say humorous, or even Voss. Those are my three favorite theologians in a kind of ascending order personally. Um, I think Voss was just tremendous. But Van Til doesn't pick a kind of luminary and cast his theology in light of a genius that he's seeking to follow. Van Til himself is a reformed confessional theologian. He begins with what has been received in his confessional identity as an Orthodox Presbyterian, and that happens to be the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, let me, let me be clear. The Westminster Confession of Faith is an Augustinian Calvinist document. It is. It is that. It's Augustinian and Calvinist as Calvin perfected and refined Augustine. It is that all the way through. But Van Til is not picking and choosing uh, heroes or theological geniuses that he wants to follow who might be more or less idiosyncratic. He begins with the Westminster Confession of Faith. But I guess a third point here is he not only begins with the Westminster Confession of Faith, but throughout this section, if you have it open or you've read it, he cites extensively from the commentary of A.A. A. Hodge on the Westminster Confession of Faith. Very much worth owning uh, if, if, you don't, if you don't have it. It's a, it's a tremendous commentary. And that means that Van Til is not presenting a novel view of the confession, but something close to what old Princeton received as confessional as it was enshrined in the work of A.A. A. Hodge. And so as Van Til begins to approach this question, you can say this, he's not a biblicist, reading his Bible in the corner, isolated from the development of doctrine from Chalcedon to the Westminster Assembly, etc. Um, secondly, he's not a, um, if I could put it this way, he's not trying to follow individual theologians in abstraction from the developing tradition. It's not 
Augustine or Calvin or even Voss. It's the Westminster Confession. And third, it's the Westminster Confession as it has been received in the theology and practice of old Princeton. And that's helpful. That, that's, I think that's a critical thing to appreciate. So whatever Van Til is going to do when he appropriates Augustine or Calvin or Bavink or Voss, how's he doing it? And this is really, it's getting more important to me every year, so I'm probably saying this more than I've said it in the past. Um, what it has, how is he appropriating those individual luminaries? In the service of a reformed confessional theology. It's not boutique theology, and it's certainly not um, a theological genius aiming for novelty. Now, what, does, what is the content of this Trinitarianism? Well, this, this language may be helpful to you. It may not be helpful to you. We'll find out when we do Q&A. I'm already on the, I've already been briefed on how we do Q&A. We'll, we'll stop. It's Q&A time. And by the way, I'll let you know this. You can ask me anything you want. Um, you won't hurt my feelings. Um, you, if, if I don't know, I'll tell you. You'll know if I don't know, right? Um, but I'm looking forward to it. It'll be fun. But I call it three... Better, better terminology could be found, but I call it th the three structural strands. The three structural strands of Orthodox Trinitarianism in the Westminster Confession, especially two, uh, three. Um, and so the title of this lecture is Van Til's Doctrine of the Trinity, Deep Structures. These are the structures. These are the three. Um, the three structural strands. Um, and to try to begin here, Van Til cites what he calls a doctrinal statement taken from A.A. Uh, a. Hodge. And the first structural strand that Van Til affirms, uh, I'll read you the quote and then I'll, uh, I'll do it. He, he, um, he, he makes reference to A.A. A. Hodge in his Confession of Faith, page 57. And Hodge is commenting on Westminster Confession 2.3, which I just read to you earlier. And here's Hodge's commentary. Hodge says that, having before shown there is but one living and true God, and that his essential properties embrace all perfections, this section, 2.3, asserts first, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are equally that one God, and that the indivisible divine essence in all divine perfections and prerogatives belong to each in the same degree. Now, I'm, I'm going to touch this and turn the page. No. I'm getting there. Oh, goodness. This is... I'm learning to drive a Ferrari. Yeah, yeah. What? Okay, that's very helpful. Um, so, so let me let me begin by by where Van Til begins here, uh, following Hodge, in what we're going to call the unabashed affirmation of monotheism. There is one 
and only one living and true God. So there is one God, one God. So, so this, this is so nice to be able to erase that. One God begins with monotheism. And so as we're Trinitarians, what Van Til is saying is the Father is God. The Son is God. I think I'm going to erase monotheism. You know what I'm talking about to keep this. And the Holy Spirit is God. While there are three persons in the Godhead, there is, and this is going to be the key, there is an indivisible divine essence that cannot be partitioned or multiplied. There is no partitioning, there is no multiplying of that divine essence. This means that all of the divine perfections and prerogatives are in the one indivisible divine essence, the unpartitioned divine essence, and the unmultiplied divine essence. It is one. To put this more uh, directly, when it comes to the relation of the persons of the Trinity to that essence, we could say it this way, and, and this is really key. The Father is the divine essence without remainder. This is really key. This is going to lead to a much more sophisticated discussion I'll have at this rate sometime tomorrow afternoon, but I hope in the morning, um, about autotheos. But, but the Father is that divine essence with all of its perfections without remainder. The Son is that divine essence with all of its perfections without remainder. And the Spirit is that divine essence with all of its perfections without remainder. And, and let me say this, um, this could be a topic you might want to do in Q&A with me. You may want to do tomorrow night or the night after. I'm going to be around for a while. We can talk. But th this is, I think, an implicit endorsement of the fact that the Father has his essence of himself. The Son has his essence of himself. And the Holy Spirit has his essence from himself. Why? Because aseity is natural to each person as a person. Why? Because that essence, it, the Father, is that essence undivided and unqualified without remainder. The Son and the Spirit likewise. Including aseity. But the implication that follows from this is that if and this is a quote from Hodge now, um, still on page 57. It follows that if the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost 
consist of the same numerical essence, they must have the same identical attributes so that there is common to them one intelligence and one will. The argument is that if there is, listen, if there's a non-partitioned, non-multiplied, indivisible divine essence, it entails that in God there is one intelligence and one will in a manner that is going to have to be related to the mystery of three distinct incommunicable personal properties. Mystery exists to be worshipped, not solved. But that, that, that point needs all the emphasis we can give it. There is the same numerical essence for each person, and that entail, entails one intelligence and one will in the Godhead. Now, I, I'm going to, to um, I'm going to make a statement here, and if you want to ask a question about it in Q&A, we're coming up on that right now. I'm, I'm doing better on time than I thought I would. I usually lose track of time, but you've got a humongous clock back there that is fluorescent, and it, it, it's drawing my eyes to it. This is great. So um, I, I've been known before to lecture for two hours with people like going, hey, stop. So this is good. Um, if I don't do it right tonight, Rex is going to give me the, the sign. But um, th this is not, creatures have a generic unity, not a numerical unity. Human nature does not exhaust the identity of the creature because we have a whole bunch of accidental properties in addition to our creatureliness per se. But the divine nature distinguishes God from all that is not God, and there are no accidents in it. So if, you, if, that, if that's good, uh, and, and you want to, to do more questions on that, we can. But let me put it this way. The, Hodge, Hodge states the mystery in this way. And I think I'll call, uh, I'll have Q&A time start here after this quote, and I, I'll do a summarizing comment. Hodge says in the outlines of his theology, we cannot conceive of how three persons can have among them but one intelligence and one will. But this is precisely what numerical unity entails. One will, one intelligence, in the one God whose essence is incapable of division. So we're going to take this as a fundamental starting point. Now, I just want to ask you this before I move into Q&A. I'm going to try to do an organic transition into Q&A. What does this robust affirmation of absolute numerical unity of an affirmation entailed by the unity of the essence that there's one intelligence and one will. What heresy does that destroy forever? Yes, it destroys subordinationism. It wasn't what I was thinking of, but it does. It destroys subordinationism, and let me explain why, just to, to, to show the logic. It means that the Father doesn't have a seity in himself. The Son doesn't have it in himself 
Because the son, the son is asse by way of a relation of derivation from the father. Um, if that were the case, the father would have a, a, an attribute, a property, the son doesn't have, right? He would be asse, but the son's not. But if, if there is an absolute affirmation that the father is the one God without remainder, all of the perfections and all the attributes, the son is the fullness of that essence without remainder. The Holy Spirit is that fullness of essence without remainder. So any form of subordinationism is gone. But it wasn't what I was thinking of. Oh, hey guys, welcome. Uh, that's that's the, uh, the online crew. Um, what, the, 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 what I was thinking of, I'll, I'll direct your attention to it. One intelligence and one will. What if, what, what about, yes? Yeah, I, well, here's what I was thinking of. I do think it destroys modalism. This actually destroys all heresies. Um, so, so yeah, I should just say that. We should, we could, we could have a list, yes. It destroys all forms of modalism because, um, among other things, the one essence of God doesn't destroy the discriminating personal properties of the Trinity. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father is the Son. There are three distinct and incommunicable personal properties that are this one God. So it destroys modalism. The one I was thinking is tritheism. You can't have three separate self-conscious centers in the Trinity because of numerical unity. But in generic unity, we can have multiple self-conscious centers. I can prove it right now. You can't guess, well, you could, theoretically. You can't know infallibly what I'm thinking, right? You don't have access to my consciousness. In the Trinity, there's no such externality, right? Because there's a numerical unity and not just a generic one. So that was my, um, th that, that point needs to be affirmed because I have read, um, I believe it was an old essay. Who was it? An old friend of mine. We graduated from seminary together, Lee Irons. I don't know if you even know that name, but he and I went to seminary together. He was one year ahead of me, maybe two. And he early on, I don't know what he believes anymore, but he would, would say that when Van Til talks about um, uh, the, the Trinity, that it's really hard for him to avoid tritheism because he wants to talk about a one consciousness and a three consciousness. If you remember, if you start where Van Til starts, it's ruled out because he's saying there is one undivided intelligence, one will and one mind in God. But then the mystery is going to be how that relates to three incommunicable personal properties, three persons who are distinct from one another. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.